Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you need some help with your happiness or achieving your goals, BetterHelp is here for you. It can offer a crucial assist. These are licensed professional counselors. Get connected in under 24 hours. Talk in a safe online environment. Change counselors for free if necessary. This is a convenient, confidential, professional, affordable service. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. And best of all, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other PPL. All right? Okay. Okay, everybody, how you doing out there? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have Hillary Leichter on the program today. Her debut novel is called Temporary. It is available now from Coffee House Press. It has been earning uh, rave reviews. Temporary, the debut novel from Hillary Leichter. She and I will be in conversation momentarily. I did get some mail that I would like to read and respond to here. A listener named Nicole writes, Hi, Brad. I was so interested to hear the conversation with Lee Stein this past weekend. Her research and insights about social media were fascinating, and they made me think. I know from listening that social media use is a longstanding interest of yours, too. I've gone back and forth in my mind about whether to write in about this, but I do get the impression that you would be open to the feedback. If I tried to quantify who spoke during the conversation, my honest best guess would be that you did 75% of the talking. I would have liked to have heard more from Lee, her voice, and her thoughts. With appreciation for your work, sign Nicole. You know what? I think this is a, a wonderful critique. I, I think it's uh, dead on. And I say this having listened to the episode. 
I've been doing more like listening to playback, uh, you know, during COVID when I'm recording remotely, just because there's a lot more glitchiness in the audio and there's no, you know, there's more need for editing and so on and so forth. And I had the exact same thought. And I think when I did the monologue, even I sensed it and I feel terrible about this because I loved talk. I loved talking with Lee or over talking with Lee. Uh, I was excited genuinely for the conversation and excited about her book and the themes that it deals with. And I was caffeinated, not to blame it on drugs, but this is what happens to me sometimes. I just get like excited and jacked up and I ramble. So it came from a good place. It didn't come from like a mansplainy place. And I hope that is evident, but uh, point taken regardless. And I think as the host of a show, that's been running for almost a decade and more than 650 episodes. This is the sort of thing I should have worked out by now. So I will try to be better going forward. And uh, Nicole, I appreciate you listening and taking the time to write in. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company, publisher of the memoir, This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire, the new one by Nick Flynn. It's a darkly beautiful, mesmerizing work from the author of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, and the ticking is the bomb. This is the night our house will catch fire as a breathtaking work of spare lyricism and astonishing insights that recounts Flynn's 1960s childhood and his attempts to understand his mother, an at times loving, at times destructive woman who ultimately committed suicide. This is a rare book that deals openly with marriage and childhood trauma and confronts some of our deepest ethical dilemmas. This is the night our house will catch fire, the new memoir by Nick Flynn. Available now from W.W. Norton and Company. So my guest today is Hilary Leichter. Her debut novel is called Temporary. It is out there now from Coffee House Press. She is uh, utterly charming and uh, just a, uh, a lot of fun to talk with. And I'm excited to share this conversation with you now. I don't think I talk as much in this one. Hopefully not. Fingers crossed. Please, God. All right. Here is Hilary Leichter. And her debut novel, One More Time, is called Temporary. Yeah, so I have experienced kindness during the pandemic. Although, which is which is also a reminder that sometimes the parts are greater than the sum of everything that we're hearing and seeing. And so for every story about casual racism or... Um, a woman refusing to wear a mask in a grocery store. There's a story about people bringing groceries to at-risk um, citizens, or you know, devoting their time to helping in some way. So I, I, I'm optimistic about the human race. <laughs> I think you, I think you sort of have to. I mean, to some degree, yeah. you sort of have to be because if you just give yeah. up, if you just give up, then then what? Then then. I don't know. I don't know how that's a sustainable attitude, especially, I, I always underscore this, but it's like, especially if you have kids. It's a tough stance to take, for sure. Yeah. No, you gotta... And parents deserve all the awards right now. I, I mean, how are you doing with all this, with your kids, with the quarantine? It's not, I mean, the homeschooling um, is a pain in the butt, you know, but I, I'm not going to complain too much. Like, we are lucky. Um, I think mm -hmm. that there are frontline workers and people out there who are like putting their lives on the line in hospitals and stuff. And, 
I mean, yeah, it's, it's an added stress and the kids are, it's an unnatural mode for children to be in, to be this cooped up, but our kids get along pretty well. And then they're both pretty good at entertaining themselves, maybe to a degree that other kids might not be. So I think maybe that's some, some of, some of me has rubbed off on my children. Like I'm such a, <laughs> I'm so, I'm so good at being in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is You've been training for this your yeah, whole life. No, I'm like my entire adult life has been in quarantine essentially. I'm this is this is no problem for me. So yeah. um I don't know. You know, that like it's definitely added stress and it's a little sad um for you know, to see your kids not be able to hang with their friends. And I should say too, and I think this is something that gets overlooked in the media a lot, um, around COVID but disabled people like my son is disabled and he was going to, I don't know, sometimes like up as many as like five or six or more like therapy appointments every week. And he can't go to yeah. those anymore. Like he has to do, he can do some of them online, but it's not the same. And so for kids who have like physical disabilities or anybody who does and who needs that kind of medical and therapeutic care, like it sets him back. Like that's actually like a big, like a big bummer for me. Like that's, I can't let myself get too sad about it because there's not much we can really do. You just have to kind of roll with the punches. Mm -hmm. But for a kid his age to be making the progress that he was making and to suddenly have that taken away by all this and it's needless, like that's a really bitter pill for me to swallow as a parent considering how badly this whole thing has been <laughs> mismanaged. So, and you don't hear that often. I'm not, I'm, not no. I'm not seeing a lot of news stories, but we know because of um, the disability, you know, disability community, there are parents who... I mean, they're still taking their kids in, kids who are in worse shape than my son physically, who really mm -hmm. desperately need it. But physical therapy for disabled kids, it's like so hands-on and, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's kind of ripe for um, infectious disease. So that part of it has been probably yeah. the toughest. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, I don't, I don't hear anyone talking about how to address that. And that's like such a huge challenge. I mean... Um, and then you see people being so casually disrespectful and, uh, and, and also like the thing that, the thing that always gets me is how much we take health for granted, you know, and, and the feeling that like health will never end when you are healthy. And I think that's informing like a lot of the bad behavior that's happening, um, instead of thinking about other people's health and not just how you're feeling in a given moment. No doubt. I was like hiking this morning and I'm very, I always wear my mask and I always like step off the trail and like let people have yeah. space, you know? And this morning I was doing that. I was letting all these people go. Like I'm, it, it's almost like a ridiculous level of chivalry because I'm always the one who's like <laughs> stepping off the trail. Um, but I have to, because I have an at risk child in my household yeah. and the guy behind me this morning, he had his mask on, but he's like, you're way, you're way more patient than I am. And I said, well, I have a disabled child in my house. And he goes, oh, yeah, oh. And he's like, gotcha. He's like, roger that. <sighs> and I'm like, you know, and he wouldn't know. Nobody would know unless you tell him. But like, I think when you're out and about, if you're not wearing a mask, you know, just, just assume that the people who are wearing a mask and need you to wear a mask might have somebody who's an at-risk person in close contact to them. Like how hard is that to make that mental leap? You know, like it's not that hard. And it like, isn't that the way we should behave all the time as if everyone around us 
needs extra care and is at risk like wouldn't that be just a better way of existing in general one would think. you know just just to assume the opposite of what people tend to assume just to assume that people need to be patient you know and people need um i don't know their community around them to be kind and to be to be empathetic to their position and it just it seems like that's where we should be coming from all the time not just during a global pandemic do you think <laughs> do you think that because of all of the tumult that we are dealing with now on a variety of levels and i want to get to your book and i want to get to the concerns of your book because i <laughs> i feel like they're i feel i feel like they're related to um they're related to what's happening now i you know i think they they sort of in some ways preceded the the economic tumult that we're um, experiencing, which I don't even think people have their heads fully wrapped around quite yet. But now I think it's intensifying and I think we could see, I don't even know what to call it because I think we're going to see things we haven't maybe seen before if, if the mm -hmm. ship doesn't get righted sometime very soon. So um, I, I guess I'm, what I'm working towards is like, do you feel like there are going to be any lasting lessons? Uh, you know, I guess this is sort of tied to my question around having a sense of hope. But I think back to like 9-11 and I was like, remember how unified everybody felt for like a minute? And then yeah. um, there might have been other, there are like other brief pockets of time where this sort of thing, uh, you know, starts to percolate a little bit. And then I feel like it recedes. And I'm like, is this going to be the time where maybe something major shifts and we really have some significant change that is meaningful and long lasting? I'm always a little bit suspicious of these big unifying moments because anytime people are talking about unity, there's always someone who's left out of that. And I was, I mean, I was in high school um, when 9-11 happened and definitely old enough to know what was going on. I lived, I grew up in North New Jersey. Um, so a lot of people commuted into the city for work. A lot of parents our community was pretty affected by what happened. And there was a minute where everyone kind of rallied together. And, you know, there were a lot of assemblies. There were a lot of memorials. There were a lot of, you know, just being together, moments of being together. But, you know, the underbelly of that was Islamophobia and um, <laughs> this this thing that had existed, this, this kind of insidious hatred that was already a part of our country, but now had an excuse to come forward and come into public. And likewise, right now, I think that there is this, we're all in it together vibe, except for the people that were expecting to risk their lives. And these are people who are often underpaid without health insurance and you know who's coming together for them so coming together is always a process of culling i think and i'm i'm very suspicious of it and i i think that yes there is hope right now that this generation having been through this will consider certain things differently than maybe they would have otherwise but i worry again about the pressure and the expectation that we put on our most underserved communities 
as a way of coming together. It, there's always a cost, right. I think. And maybe that's a little pessimistic, but I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I always raise an eyebrow at that kind of language. It, it feels hollow to me. Yeah, I was like talking to my to my parents this past weekend, and I was like, I, I, Jeff Bezos can get me really feisty. <laughs> oh and I'm just oh, like, yeah. this guy is worth now $200 billion, and his workers are in these warehouses, like, peeing in bags and, you know, whatever it is they yeah. got to do to, like, pick enough products per hour to meet their quotas. And, like, he could double all of their salaries in a blink of an eye with no problem at all. Like, what is he, why, yeah. what is the problem here? Like in the midst of all this, like, wouldn't that be the easiest gesture in the world? Like, yeah, you're risking your lives, but like, I'm going to take care of you. Like, why is he not doing that? Like, what is wrong with this guy? Am I over, am I oversimplifying <laughs> it? <laughs> no, you're not. You're not oversimplifying it. I don't, I don't know what his damage is. I think that, um, oh God, the worst, I hate him, uh, but like, <laughs> Can I say that? Like, I'm going to say it. Yes. 200, 200 billion dollars. <laughs> 200 billion dollars. It's a number that shouldn't... It's the, it's the reason he's not just giving everyone a raise or giving everyone hazard pay or whatever needs to happen to make people's lives livable and safe is the same reason that he has 200 billion dollars. Like, the idea of a billionaire should be in fantasy novels only why does anyone need that much wealth you know why does anyone need that much generational wealth what is the what are you trying to do is really what i would ask that person because it's capitalism run amok you know we all have a right to to support ourselves and to support our families and to have ambition and to strive for more than what we have but what is that more? Like, what what are you doing? You're just going to be a king of a graveyard, you know? Like, I don't, I just don't understand what the end goal is, aside from domination. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> not to be extreme, but it's like, that's why. That's why he's not helping, because for the same reason why he's a billionaire. Yeah. It just doesn't, doesn't sit right. You know, the idea of a billionaire does not sit right with me. I think like like I think once you get past a certain level of wealth your your um what do you call it capital gains or you know it's not you're a super villain yeah. that's what you call it. No but you should why why not <laughs> you're, you're we should just tax that at like 95% like past a certain yeah. level like we'll pick a number yeah. like I don't begrudge somebody who builds a great business and gets wealthy. Like I'm no. like, listen, if you, and I don't know what the number is, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. Is it like a hundred million? What's the cutoff? Like, you know, and how do we figure it out? But like, I don't know. if somebody wants to be super rich, like think about Jeff Bezos. If you taxed his capital gains at 95%, <laughs> he would still be a billionaire. <laughs> like he'd still be like, there would yeah. still be generational wealth. He would be like ridiculously wealthy. He could still have a yacht. He could still have a helicopter. Like, that's the level of that's where the numbers just start to get so crazy for me. And so I don't know. I just wish that we could make some sort of uh, agreement that it's not uh, it's immoral to be one person controlling that much wealth in a world where people are like sleeping in the streets and struggling to make ends meet, even though they're working full time. It is. It is immoral. It's I mean, again, like what like you said, there's nothing wrong with being successful. 
but at a certain point it's not success like when the numbers become imaginary <laughs> which is to me 200 billion dollars is i mean i know imaginary numbers are an actual real thing in mathematics but but i mean the 200 billion is not real that's I would, if that were in one of my students' stories, I would write a comment next to it, like, not believable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just, it doesn't, um, I don't know what you could possibly want with that. That That's that's where, yeah. Is it just, it's just power. It's just power is what it is. Right, right. I mean, and he sort of is taking on the, the aesthetic of a, Marvel Comics supervillain now, where it's like all this, oh, like all this yeah. like protein shakes and the shiny bald head, and you know the whole thing. Uh, yeah, Lex Luthor. Revenge. It's like Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> yeah, it's Lex Luthor. Uh... Hey, folks! If you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better. All of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. So let's talk about oh let's talk about work. And because I sure. feel like right now a lot of people are losing their jobs. I feel like, you know, yeah. we obviously have these frontline workers whose jobs have now become life threatening in a really kind of overt mm -hmm. way and every day they wake up to go to work and it's like, is today going to be the day that, you know, I get infected and something could happen. So, um, the stakes of the economy have, uh, ratcheted up significantly and I'm not, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but you know, I saw last week the report that the GDP had dropped by like 32%. Mm. Um, you yeah. have like over a million people on unemployment or filing for unemployment. You have all these benefits that are, um, discontinuing. You have a lot of people who face the threat of eviction. Like things are very <laughs> rocky economically and maybe in ways that haven't fully manifested yet. Like we haven't seen the full, um, damage. And I, I think about that. And then I think about your book, which in some way, in some ways seems quaint compared to, you know, when you think about like the gig, yeah. the gig economy and, you know, this sort of, um, you know, surrealist take that you, um, or this surrealist approach that you've used in your fiction to address it all. Like, can you speak to that? Like just where your head was in writing your, your novel and like how you are processing the situation that we're in now? Do you see the two things as related? Yeah, I 
Um, it's so funny. I was talking with a friend yesterday or the day before, and he said, I think that your book was the last book from the gig economy while the gig economy still existed. And I hadn't thought about it that way before, but now I kind of agree that it's a period piece. It's a relic from something that is dead. Um, I didn't think of it in that way at the beginning of the pandemic. I kind of thought, well, these things were all under the surface and I was thinking about everything that people are dealing with now when I was writing my book, if not in these exact terms. But now I think, no, the pandemic has slaughtered the way that the modern workplace existed as we know it. And I, I don't think it's going to come back in the same way. I think it's going to be different, both in positive and negative ways. But yeah, I feel like I wrote a period piece is what <laughs> is not something I thought I'd be saying on a podcast in 2020. But I, it feels, um, it feels to me that that way of existing kind of bopping around from job to job is not sustainable anymore. It was never sustainable as a way of life, but now I don't know. I don't physically know how I could do the things that I was doing two or three years ago to pay rent. It's just that that's gone. It's so, it's so wild. Well, I think about like just as just I, I'm in shock. Yeah, well, just as one example, like I'm with somebody who was taking, I was probably in in a Lyft or an Uber, like you mm-hmm. know, multiple times a week. I haven't taken one in months. Uh, yeah. You know, and that that's like the ultimate gig economy job. Yeah. You know, that's the the go to for people, and that I gotta believe has been decimated by COVID. Oh yeah, just as one example. So. I don't know. In the absence of like a really effective vaccine, I don't know how it comes back. I, you know, I guess unless you get to some level of herd immunity or something, you know, I don't know what, what you really do with that. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is a world in which it could all just come back and be what it was, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, there was just an article in the times this morning that a third of small businesses in New York city will never come back a third that's that's huge I, I i don't even know i didn't even read the article yet because it just the headline made me so physically ill but i think the whole landscape is going to be different and i i wish i i wish i knew in what ways but <laughs> but i the place i was writing from does not seem to be in the world anymore <laughs> in a in a strange way. Um, I was really just commuting all over and um, I had built a career on sort of doing executive assistant tasks for what we in Yiddish call Alta cockers for just <laughs> for elderly people um, making copies, scans, uh, doing just office work, um, emails, things like that. And I, I don't think that commuting around the city, visiting high risk um, people <laughs> is, is just, it's not a thing anymore. You know, um, it's not a thing I would do. So it's causing me to 
really reflect on where the book came from and the emotions that went into it and how that's not only, I mean, it, it it's something in my past. It's not the job that I currently have, but now it's, it's also something in our collective past. Well, and, you know, I think too about the ways in which we derive a sense of identity from the work that we do. Yeah. And when you have a large swath of the population for whom that entire project is upended, you know, people are suddenly out of work. Yeah. And um, and then I, even before that, you know, when you're working in the gig economy and you're jumping from thing to thing, I think your book speaks to the kind of, um, you, you know, the, the head spinning nature of those circumstances where it can be hard to sort of land on a solid sense of who you are when things change so often. Yeah. I can relate to that. You know, I've done so many different things in my career. Part of it I think is cool because I like to try different things, but there can also be times when I sit back and I think like, would, would I, am I making a mistake by not settling in on mm -hmm. something and like really defining myself? Uh, and then in the absence of anything, there can be that feeling of uh, free fall, you know, that I think a lot of people are probably experiencing now. And I guess the question I would have for you is with regard to how we derive our sense of identity, do you think it's healthy for people to put so much, especially, you know, especially adult people, maybe in the Western world in particular, to put so much stock in their professional identity in terms of how they sort themselves out? No, <laughs> I don't think it's healthy. <laughs> no, um, but, but it's, but it's standard. And I, you know, so many people out of work right now who are now having to ask that question. Well, if I'm not this, if I'm not this job, who am I even? You know, what am I, what am I, <laughs> which is existentially baffling when anywhere you go in this life up until this year, the first thing people want to know is what do you do? So my optimistic hope is that maybe we'll start to expand our definition of what the self is and what it means to be a person beyond how you function as a cog in capitalism. But, you know, the realistic side of, of me is really wondering, you know, what does that feel like now for so many people in a time of great stress and great economic stress and, you know, people who are sick too, having to also confront what it means to be a person on top of all that it's it just seems wildly unfair and um and difficult um but i so maybe maybe this is the moment when when we start to change our perception of who we are as individuals and look at that more as who we are as individuals in a collective you know within a group of people that is our our state or our community or our household 
there's something about the what do you do question that's so tied to what it means to just be a single person and not what it means to be a part of a group of people, which we all are, no matter how small or how big. So I wonder, I mean, I, maybe that's a positive thing. That could, <laughs> I'm really struggling here to find the, the silver lining. But yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, I say that I can't stand it. And if I'm being honest, I engage in it sometimes as a matter of like reflex. You just go, oh, so what do you, and I, I kick myself every time yeah. I do it. I'm trying to stay away from that and just ask people about who they actually are instead of, you know, I don't care. And I think too, like, I don't know. I think people who might be really conventionally successful probably love that line of questioning sometimes because they get to be like, well, as a matter of fact, you know, like I'm a Titan of industry or whatever it is. And, you know, but I think for most people, I think it's, it's a, a source of exhaustion and tedium. I had trouble with that question for a long time um, because for a long time I was a writer, but I wasn't published, you know? And so that's just a complicated wormhole of, of uh, clarifications that, you know, it depends on what party you're at. Sometimes you don't want to get into it. Well, I'm a writer, but, and oh, I'm working on it, but, and so then you can say, well, I'm a personal assistant or I do small jobs for people and it, it makes a salary. And that's, that's also complicated um, because it sounds directionless a little bit, I think, to the certain, a certain type of person. Um, and they start making assumptions about you that are maybe true, maybe not. So I used to have trouble with that. But ironically, this is the first time in my life where if I were at a party... <laughs> I could say I'm a novelist, but there are no parties anymore. This would be your golden era. You could be like, I... It would be my time, I know. (laughs) But my husband, he always asks... I'm horrible. I ask people, what do you do all the time, even though I'm so opposed to it. But he always asks people what they're excited about and what they're working on, which I think is so cute. I really... I love that. And a lot of times the person that he's talking to will be taken aback and kind of say, what do you mean? What am I excited about? Like, that's not something they've ever even considered being a thing you can ask someone. I, so I, I really like that because it kind of speaks to what, how are you engaging with the world right now? And maybe that's your job. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's, you know, buying a couch. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to think about what I'm excited about right now. Yeah. What are you excited about? I think I'm excited about the creative work that I'm doing. And I uh, lately have been, I cannot stop looking at like remote Airbnbs and like houses in nature. That's all I do is look at like houses in Montana. (laughs) And is everybody, is everybody doing this? Everyone's like, how do I escape from the world? And I want there to be like a, (laughs) a stream near my house that I can go sit next to or something. We were thinking if we could find something kind of cut off from the world, not put anyone at risk and just escape from, but there's not a lot right now, as you can imagine, because people are, everyone is doing this, I think. Everyone's engaged in that kind of escapism. I was laughing to myself earlier, like a bit earlier in the conversation when you were like, yeah, you know, when you ask people that question, a lot of times they're taken aback because, and then you said, you know, they're not used to being asked that question. I thought you were going to say, They've never actually thought about what they're excited about. <laughs> you know, like I don't think necessarily. 
well, maybe that's it. Maybe that's part of it. Well, I think, yeah, I think sometimes people are so swept up in the day-to-day responsibilities of life that there's almost not time to be excited about anything. Like, that's a problem. It is a problem. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, You know, I want to hear you talk. I think people listening would be interested to hear you talk a bit more about how you got your book done, you know, while you were balancing all these day jobs and, like, the decision-making process that went into it, um, like just the nuts and bolts of how you got the work done in the midst of all this and how you dealt with the the stresses that go along with it? Yeah, sure. I want to start by saying that I'm always super wary of writers giving advice about how how to write a book, whether that's like financial decisions you make or when you write it. And so this is just what I did. I don't even think it'll work for my next book. You know, I think it's that project based. So whatever works for you is <laughs> that's always my feeling, however you can get it done. But um, I, I wrote it originally as a short story in 2012 for my graduate thesis and published it and thought it was done, which is kind of, kind of how I feel about things that things that are published, which is maybe not right, but I felt like it was finished and then spent about four years working full time at an assortment of jobs, everything from being a personal assistant to ebook quality assurance at random house to um, what other weird things did I do? Well, teaching. I did a lot of teaching as well, tutoring, um, all different ages, any, anything, anything, you name it, I've probably done it. And I spent those four years working on a novel that is now sitting in a drawer and I don't even know if it'll ever, if anything will ever happen with it. But I, I wasn't getting anywhere. I felt all this pressure to finish something. I had dozens of short stories, but not a collection. And I was feeling the burn I was feeling like oh if I don't do something with this then I'm not then I'm not a writer and I'm not gonna do this with my life and this book was just not going anywhere so I went back and I looked at some of my short stories and temporary seemed like it seemed like there was more to that world and it so accurately represented how I felt day to day and I thought well that's interesting I wrote this when I was, you know, 25, 26. I'm almost 30 now and I still feel the same way, the same kind of emotion that rises off of this story is the emotion that I feel. I feel tired, I feel underappreciated, I feel unstable, I feel resentful that I can't start my life, but this is my life and <laughs> Maybe it's my life forever. And so I wanted to write into those emotions. And I went back to the short story. And it was like the veil had been lifted. The process of writing this book was so much fun. I felt that I had just been wasting so much time trying to write this high concept novel that made no sense and was just endlessly painful. And this book was a joy. I wrote it in a sprint um, and I 
I wrote the bulk of it when I was working as an executive assistant, but it was a remote position. So anytime that I wasn't actively doing something for my job, I could be writing on this book. And I was home. I was sick the couple of weeks I was working on it. So I didn't feel an impulse to be social or to make plans or to overwhelm my schedule. And I had nowhere to be. And I had to do my daily work for my job. But I also could just sit in my pajamas and write. And it was a really crucial gift <laughs> those few weeks of not having anywhere to be but just on my couch working and um yeah I wrote it in a little bit less than a month and sent it out again I don't think I'm working on a new book now and I don't think the process with this book will be the same I tend to marinate on things for a long time and then put them down on paper so for the month that it took me to write the book there were two years of edits that went into it and four years of having it in my mind <laughs> prior to trying to turn it into a novel. Um, so there wasn't a lot of juggling that went into trying to find the time to write the book, <laughs> which I feel badly saying, but it, it was just the way that it came out. Um, what happened next was trying to sell it and trying to get an agent and all of that. And that took significant time. And so that was, that was un, unmooring a little bit. I, I wanted so much for my life to move forward and for that to be my life. But I was still taking on all of this mindless work, all of these jobs that went nowhere. And the book wasn't selling right away. And so I, I was still trying to find a career through all of that. And the day that my book went out on submission to editors, I started a new temp job. <laughs> so it was like, it was really comical. It was like, I was still living the life of my book, even as my book was being sold. And I, I don't know. It was just a weird meta odd experience all around. How long did it take for your book to, to sell? <laughs> Um, so we sent it out in 2017 and we were getting a lot of lovely rejections. Um, and then a couple of people who wanted to, who were interested in seeing a revised version. So we pulled it from submission and I spent about six months working on it, changing it, tweaking it. And then we sent it out again. And so that second time, I think it took three months to sell which I don't know if that's long I've heard everything from things selling in a day to things taking years but it was because we had that initial out on submission period and then pulling it back and it felt like forever the whole thing felt like ages and ages and but you know what it only it only the, the 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 there's no rule I don't think in terms of how no, something's no. supposed to go but the the one rule that there is is that it only takes one like as long as you yes, as long as you find somebody true. who believes in it and you know is willing to um support yeah. it and put it into print that's all that's all that it takes and then everybody around you like nobody none of your friends probably have any clue or most of them anyway don't have any clue that it took however many months it took or that you spent 6 months revising all that stuff just right. falls away it fades into the it does yeah it fades into the background and it ended up absolutely 
at the right place with Emily Books and and Coffee House Press, and they really believed in its weirdness and never never encouraged me to change the strangeness of or to kind of normalize it in any way. And I, I feel grateful to have ended up with them. Yeah, no, that's great. Coffee House is great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they're wonderful. So where were you when you got the good news? Like, how did that go down? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I haven't thought about that in a while. I was, um, I did a fellowship at the Folger Shakespeare Library, and it was a month-long residency. They gave, gave you, like, an apartment across the street from the library um, in Washington, D.C., and you got access to all of the archives there. And I, I wasn't writing about Shakespeare, but I proposed a novel written in the style of a commonplace book. They have a huge collection of commonplace books at the library. And so I was there doing research for a book that I'm working on. And, um, and I got the news when I was in D.C., which was really fun because I was kind of my head was in another project already. And that was that was really nice. So like for people listening who might not be familiar with what a commonplace book is. Oh yeah. Can you, can sure. you give me just like a quick definition? I'm thinking there could be people at home going, what is a commonplace book? Yeah. It's, it's a little tricky to describe actually for me, at least I don't, it, it was a popular form of journaling for a time, um, mostly in Europe and England and America and it's not really a journal in the sense that it's not like, dear diary, today I walked my dog and had a crush on someone. It's more, um, there are commonplace books that are just lists of quotations from books that people were reading. And books were incredibly precious at the time. And a lot, you know, you didn't own a lot of books unless you were very wealthy. And so writing down quotations that were meaningful to you from books was a way of keeping the book in your home without having to own it. Um, there were commonplace books that were full of recipes that were passed down through generations of a family. Um, I got, I had the chance to look at George Eliot's commonplace book when I was there, and it was all the notes she was taking in her research for Middlemarch, and that was wild. It was, I mean, I got to touch them. It was really cool. Oh, cool. Um, so it's, so it's really a broad category and the book that I was thinking of, um, which is now sort of on the back burner, but I'm still working on it was, uh, a commonplace book, but you know, all the quotations and recipes are fictional and through kind of accruing all of these, it's almost like a scrapbook, but with words, um, accruing all of this information, you store, you sort of start to get the picture of a world and, the picture of a narrator too. Yeah, I, I uh, in this version of the book that I just finished writing, I sort of built a commonplace book as like a rough draft. Almost. Really? Yeah, like almost as a rough draft. Oh, amazing! And it worked out for I me. I think it's a great. Yeah, I think it's a great way to organize your thoughts for a book. Actually, um, yeah, it's not. It's just not used anymore. But I don't know why. I guess because Twitter is our collective commonplace book now well maybe that maybe maybe there's something to that thought because i quit twitter and then suddenly i'm building a commonplace oh, book so maybe i was i was go. building my own twitter i don't need twitter i can build my yeah. own but uh absolutely it's nice to like i mean just at the very i think at the very like 
most basic logic level, if you're trying to get your thoughts together for a book and there are a lot of like complex thematic issues that you're trying to resolve and tease apart and everything, why would you not use precedent? You know what I'm saying? Like, why would you mm-hmm. not use existing work to like build your case? I think sometimes I, I can put like yeah. this huge pressure, like this huge compositional pressure on myself as a writer to sort of come up with it, you know, like, for, like out of thin air, you know? Oh, and yeah. it's like, no, you don't have to do that. That's why there are books, you fool. Like go out and read and take some notes and put it together that way. Like that's the way that it's, you know, that's the much more elegant approach, I think. Yeah, and it's a much more realistic approach too. I think fiction gets caught up in the idea of invention when there's really nothing new and everything you're inventing is some sort of collage of things that you've experienced and art that you've witnessed and taking the mystery out of writing fiction, taking that, well, I need to be inspired, that that kind of feeling, putting that aside is so liberating because then you realize that it's just like making anything else, you know, where you, you need ingredients, you need input, you need other people's ideas, you need, you know, right. All the bits and pieces and bits and bobs that go in there. But it's so, it's (laughs) so easy. It's so easy to trick yourself. I don't know why that, I mean, why is that so difficult for me to wrap my head around, but it's a good lesson. Um, yeah, I think so. And you said earlier that you were raised in North Jersey, and now you live in Brooklyn. Yeah. So have you been in that neck of the woods your whole life? Um, yes. I went to college in Pennsylvania, um, Haverford College. It's like right outside of Philly. and But yeah, I've pretty much lived in the tri-state area for... <laughs> depending which three states you're including in the tri-state area. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in New Jersey, um, then went to college in Pennsylvania, then moved to the city, New York, right after college. And you did graduate school where? At Columbia. At Columbia, okay. So, yeah. and, and then what town in Jersey are you from? Demarest. It's a tiny little town with a gazebo. <laughs> it's really small. Um, great high school, great public school. Um it was a beautiful place to grow up. I rode my bike around till dark, you know. Okay. I had cute jobs. <laughs> it was it was idyllic. And then we would go into the city as a family because um, it it's just twenty minutes over the George Washington Bridge it was a thing that we liked to say. <laughs> but but so we would you know we were just steps away from art and culture and theater and museums and it was I feel I feel lucky to have grown up there so what were the cute jobs that you had as a child (laughs) um oh god well I worked I mean they're just like they're so cliche like I feel like I'm in Dawson's Creek or something (laughs) I worked at a video a video rental place which that's not a thing anymore I worked at a west coast video and Oh my god. That my boss there, his name was Romeo. <laughs> he wouldn't there was a tiny little back room with porn. And anytime someone came in to rent something from there, he wouldn't let me ring up the transaction. 
which at the time I thought was very chivalrous. But now I'm like, what? Can't I can't take it? What? <laughs> <laughs> but he was really that was a really nice job for the most part. And um, I worked at a Cold Stone Creamery, <laughs> which my friend and I, a group of us got jobs there. And I was the only one still standing by the end of the summer. They all quit. <laughs> and they were like, well, the great thing is you're going to be so sick of ice cream by the end of the summer. That's a big fat lie. I just, if anything, I consumed my weight in ice cream every day and loved every minute of it. <laughs> but yeah, you had to sing songs. People would give you a tip and you had to sing a song. And they were all kind of Cold Stone-themed songs written to the tunes of, like, The Farmer in the Dell and other public domain music. <laughs> it was really awful. Wait, do you, do you, uh, is this a thing at Cold Stone Creameries that the employees sing? Yeah, I don't know if it's still a thing, but this was when they first opened. It was a new chain, and uh, it was a thing that the employees sang. Yeah. Damn. And it was like, like <laughs> I don't even remember the songs, but it was every time you got a tip, you had to sing. It, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and so there, there would be these little kids with their families <laughs> coming for ice cream after dinner. And the kids would have like a handful of quarters and they'd just stand at the tip jar and put a quarter in and then we would sing and then they'd put another quarter in. And if we weren't singing, the manager would say, why aren't you singing? <laughs> it's awful. Oh my God. We were like a jukebox. We were a human jukebox. Um, those were cute jobs. I worked, um, uh, I guess some of these were technically... How old was I? I don't know. I don't remember like what age you had to be to to work. Um, but when I was, I guess like fifteen, sixteen, which is sort of on the border. I mean, I did babysitting and all of that too. But um, I worked at a local regional theater, which I had been taking classes there and performing there since I was a little girl. And then when I was old enough, I worked there as an inch, like a paid intern and um, was an assistant teacher for the kids classes. And that was a lot of fun. What, that like was, teaching that was like, mu like musical theater. Yeah. Musical theater. And you have a perform, a performance background. Yeah. Yeah. For most of my young adult life and up until the time I moved to New York, I wanted to be an actress and I moved here to go on auditions and, um, yeah. And then I became a writer. <laughs> so I really narrowed it down to the two least stable professions that I could find <laughs> in the world. But yeah. Okay. So let's talk. This is interesting. So you grew up, uh, in a performance environment and that was kind of what you were focused on. And then at some point in your adult, you know, yeah. like your twenties, you made the shift from mm -hmm. you know trying to be what a broadway star to being a novelist <laughs> is that right yeah yeah pretty that's that's the long and short of it i um i mean i was always a writer i always excelled in writing and uh, loved writing and when i was much younger i would write little mini novels and short stories and poems that my teacher would allow me to read to the class and i'm sure that fueled everyone's hatred for me. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I was always a writer too, but I loved performing. And now looking back on it, I think what I really loved was creating a character. And 
and entering a narrative and building a world and all of that. So I, I, yeah, I moved to New York, went on auditions. I wasn't coming from a theater conservatory program. I went to a liberal arts school. And so I really had no idea what I was doing. Everyone seemed to have connections or inroads or I would go to an audition with a friend from high high school and he would know everyone there. And it was just very, I imagine that's what it's like starting out being a writer, actually like going to readings and everyone seems to know each other. And it was very intimidating. And I went to this one cattle call for the national tour of Fiddler on the Roof that they were going to put on and starring Topol. <laughs> he was going to come back and be Tevya. And I, and I got I got there and and there were no joke five hundred Jewish girls who looked just like me. Some of them I had gone to Hebrew school with. It was like every person I'd ever <laughs> ever gone to Hebrew school with was at this audition. And I didn't even get to sing. You know, we just stood in a line and the casting director looked at each of us and then excused us. So that was eye opening for me because I felt I felt like if this is what it is, I don't know how to do this. I don't know a way in. And I also don't think that the thing I was dreaming of existed, exists anymore. You know, I wanted to be like an old dame, you know, (laughs) and like, I just don't, I didn't see that that existed for me. So I kind of, I feel the same way about how I came of age in publishing and you know, what my, what my expectations were for the business of publishing I had been reading all these like novels from the early 20th century and the mid century and basing mm-hmm. my, uh, you know, my uh, perceptions of how publishing worked and what it was like to be a writer based on that when books were much more primary in the culture and write- writers were like <laughs> celebrated, yeah. like, you know, widely celebrated figures and all this kind of stuff. I just didn't have like a contemporary sense of the publishing business when I started. I mean, films and TV don't help that. I don't think anyone in any movie ever has ever had an accurate publishing job. It's always like, oh, it's your first book. We're going to send you to (laughs) Thailand on tour. And it's it's like, has anyone ever met an editor before? Like done? Yeah, I think that when, and similarly, my ideas of being a performer, I'm sure came from some fanciful notion of films that I'd seen. You know, I just, yeah, I, I don't know. Who, were, who I, were some of your Who were some of your heroes? Like, what were like who were you looking at as a model? Oh, you know, like Bernadette Peters and Patti Lapone, and I wanted to be like a, a a diva. You know, I wanted to be um, Audrey McDonald. I wanted I wanted that kind of career. And then I realized, oh no, that they exist already. <laughs> so you can't you can't have that. Um, and also, just I I think think that the shape of Broadway was changing too. I was interested in things that were a little bit offbeat, which should come as no surprise to anyone who's read my book. But I wanted things that were different and a little bit inventive and. It, at the time when I w- was moving to New York, it was really just all movies that were turned into musicals and then turned back into movies. And I think if I had s- 
stayed on that track for a minute longer, I would have realized that off-Broadway is really where all of that invention and innovation exists. But but I became really drawn to writing. And I, you know, I don't know that I'll never go back to singing or performing, but I think I think writing scratches all the itches that I wanted scratched for me. I was going to say, because there is... A pr- like, believe it or not, maybe some people who, who don't do this, uh, you know, with their time would have a hard time believing it. But I do think there's something perform- performative in writing fiction in particular, where sure. uh, maybe to greater and lesser extents, but for somebody like you who has this theatrical background, I have to believe that when you were writing your novel, you were like saying the lines out loud and like maybe like, oh, yeah. you know, was there, <laughs> there's got to be an element of that, right? Totally. I I think um, <laughs> I completely outed myself as a theater person on Twitter and Amber Sparks, who is a writer that I love, she she provided a blurb for my book and she saw this tweet. And I think she said something like, I knew you were one of those. <laughs> like, <laughs> I knew you were a theater person when I read your book. And I think it's totally in there. Um, that's I mean, that's what inspires me. That's that's what where my influences lie, for sure. Like, are there people singing? I mean, at some point, you're going to have to integrate somehow character singing into um, a novel. Does that ever happen? By the way, I don't know if I don't know how you would do that. Characters sing in a novel. Yeah. I think. I mean, if you think about the songs from Shakespeare, I think that there's an opportunity with writing like that for people to become a part of the book and write music for lyrics that exist in a book. I really like that. Um, my new book does have indeed some singing in it. Really? And I'm struggling with that very problem of how to incorporate music, but I think it's a good problem. I'm excited. I think too, like, uh, I mean, I, I didn't have any songs in my book, but I wrote like one short section has to do with uh, a poet. And it's like, I think mm-hmm. like brevity is good. Like too much, like, like when you're trying to, yeah. if you're trying to include lyrics, like you have to work in like quick jabs. I think if there's like page after page of song lyrics, it might not be doable or it'll be harder. No. And I'm also not a songwriter. So then there's the problem of the reader saying, well, this song isn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that's the right approach. Quick jabs. Um, so, okay. So you, you know, make this decision to go to writing, I guess it had been something that had been sort of trailing throughout your life. But at some point you said like, this is, this is the shift. And then you made like a hard turn. It wasn't, or was it more of the thing that like, you kind of were working on this book on the side and then suddenly it it emerged as like the lead horse, if I'm going to use like a, that analogy. (laughs) So, um, so right before I applied to graduate school, I, um, I did these two one-woman shows, like a cabaret show, and it was all American songbook standards and me singing with a an accompanist. And it was at Don't Tell Mamas on 46th Street, <laughs> and um, and I wrote all the patter because essentially for something like that you have to create, or I think I at least think you have to create a, a narrative that's almost more autobiographical to encompass all the music. And it was an hour long show. And I really liked that process of creating content for myself. And then I started writing short fiction from that place. 
And um, I realized I didn't know what to do with any of it. I didn't know the online landscape around writing has changed so much in the past 12 years. And I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, Twitter was barely a thing. There wasn't this whole community on Twitter. There was no catapult. There was the 92nd Street Y, but that was too expensive for me at the time. And I just didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to find community. So I decided to apply for graduate programs. And um, I figured, you know, this will not only give me the training that I need but and the direction that I need, but it'll give me other people like me who want to talk about books all day and who are interested in this. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, no, I think that's like the most useful yeah. function of graduate school in writing is the community part of it and just meeting other weirdos who are into this. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's harder, it's harder. I mean, I guess you can do it online, but there's something, I remember loving that part of it like the in the classroom interface with your, your fellow students and with your instructor and uh yeah like the i don't know if you had this experience but for me it was like right away a comfortable environment it was like oh here here we all are like where have you guys been hiding yeah. you know <laughs> like... i was a little it it became a very comfortable environment it became clearly such the appropriate choice for me and for what i needed but I was I was nervous at first and I like I was a bit of a dark horse. I don't think anyone knew me that well. I was I was living in Brooklyn and commuting up to Columbia, so I wasn't there for a lot of late night shenanigans and um I had just started dating the person who would end up being my husband and so I had very little motivation to stay out till three in the morning in Morningside Heights. <laughs> and I was a little bit like on the edge of the program. And then I had a workshop with Donald Antrim, my, the, the end of my second, my first year. And that was kind of even more than taking the class with him. The people in that class were just incredible. And I kind of found my footing in that workshop and started to have an understanding of what my voice was as a writer and what type of writing interests me and what, what I could add to the conversation. So it took a little bit, but ultimately it was priceless. Well, it wasn't priceless. <laughs> <laughs> Still paying for it. I was going to say, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. But you had good teachers and you had some like cl yeah. classmates that you got along with that were talented and are probably out there publishing uh, stuff too, right? Amazing people. Yeah. Um, Diane Cook, whose book was just long listed for the, the booker prize she was we actually became, didn't become close until um after the program but she was there i interviewed her what was the name of her first book i'm, I'm blanking on man v man v nature yeah man v nature i, think you did. I interviewed yeah. her i interviewed her when that came out yeah yeah she's amazing um and mary south's book just came out this spring she was there with me uh shwen juliana wang home remedies um it was an amazing I'm forgetting a lot of people, but it was an amazing, amazing group. Um, and then Alex Kleeman was the year after us and Sarah Novich. So it was just like, it was very inspiring being there. That's awesome. And they tell you when you're, yeah, they tell you when you're there, like the connections that, I mean, everyone's so in awe of the professors, but I remember everyone saying, no, the real connections are the people that you 
work with here, your peers. And it, they, it was so true. That's right. No, and I think like to be, yeah. I think the program, to be in a program that has proximity to the business itself, that can't hurt. I'm sure you guys get to talk to agents yeah. and people who work in publishing maybe with a greater degree of ease than like a program even like out in Iowa. I know they fly people in, but like. They do. Is, is yeah. It, is, you know what? I don't, I didn't have very much of that. Really? This was, it was almost 10 years ago, so I can't speak to what it is now, but yeah, no, there wasn't a lot of practical career stuff. No, neither at, neither there. at my program. I went to USC, yeah. <laughs> but I think okay. that I think honestly think that academic institutions in general, especially when they are related, when the programs in question are related to the arts, have a habit of falling short when it comes to practical matters. Like they're very focused and great on the aesthetics and on the craft and on the art side of it, but the business side of it, you know, that part of it often atrophies. I don't know if it's as natural of a fit for the people who wind up running those programs to, to work on, you know, creating real structure around that sort of education. But it's a shame, kind of. You would think at a Columbia, yeah. you could call up anybody in publishing and be like, hey, will you come talk to our students? Like, what an honor. You would think they'd be able to I get anybody. Yeah, I do think that that's changed. I, I want to say that I feel like the conversation around these matters has changed in the past 10 years. And the idea that creating and training an artist is also about training them to support themselves outside of their art. Mm -hmm. So I would hope, I just, I can't speak to it, but yeah, at the time there were some guest speakers who came in. Um, there's, they have this annual agent cocktail party where if you, I think it's, I think it's for alumni only, but if you have a manuscript, you can go and you can meet agents there, but it's a party. It's not, a lecture, you know, from an agent. Do you actually bring your manuscript, like your physical manuscript? No. Oh my God. Just walk around, just like, hi, I have a motive. It's it's infamously awkward, but that's me and my element. I'm just like, you know, running around introducing myself to strangers. That's where I feel at home. So I, I did go to a couple of those and it was fun. But no, I didn't bring my manuscript with me. That would Multiple be copies and, a in a backpack. <laughs> Uh, I mean, now not? that you say it, I should have. I mean, why not? I, I think too. Like as I, as we're having this conversation, like it strikes me that I feel like graduate like writing programs in this particular era would be wise to either mandate or at least offer a class in like basic coding, so that writer so that writers <laughs> can create like have an easier time creating their own online presence. Right. I wish I would have yeah. had that. That's that's, that's like a, a practical idea. matter that like nobody really thinks of. That would be pretty easy, I think, to integrate into an MFA program. But I always feel like writers who have some skill in that department and who can like build their own websites and can update them regularly and make them look cool. Yeah. Like that's a nice skill to have um, because so much of like how an author interfaces yeah. with the world happens online these days. I will say as someone who did do that, I did build my own website and I do update it regularly. <laughs> uh, Squarespace is very, not, not to make this a, <laughs> 
with with other people twenty, you can get twenty yeah, percent. Right. By the way, did, I forgot to mention to my <laughs> um, listeners that you know right now you can get a deal on Squarespace. <laughs> no, Wait, really? I, I think <laughs> they they do they are running a special yeah. right now. I think, but um, it they make it so easy. It's really it's so intuitive. I'm not an expert in this stuff at all, and I made a passable. What do you pay? What do you pay for that? Do you have to pay like a monthly? Um, no, it's an, I, I do it in, uh, uh, it's an an annual payment. I think I got a discount probably from a podcast when I first set it up and, um, now it's 99 a year. And my feeling is, and I didn't set it up, you know, when I was in grad school, I set it up after I had like a dozen or so publications to my name online and in journals. And I, I figured, you know, if I do this, then I have to at least make a hundred dollars a year from my writing to pay. So the website pays for itself. And I did. There you go. So it worked out. Yeah. I don't think a hundred dollars a year for a website is exorbitant. I mean, right. If you can easily update it. I mean, well, it was, it felt exorbitant when I first set it up. But then I thought, but it was only eighty nine dollars. You, you know what stresses me? You know what stresses <laughs> I, me out is all these like auto pay things that yeah. I have. Like my daughter gets all these freaking apps on. You know, she gets these games and these apps, and it's like I lose track of all that stuff. And I wonder how much money I'm burning through on an annual basis and not even realizing it because I'm such a I'm so bad at keeping track of everything. This is a good thing for artists to do, actually, is like a subscription audit. I try and do it once a year but mostly fail at it but i i end up subscribing to a lot of stuff whether it's like a literary magazine or an app or things like that and then you forget and then it renews and then it renews again and um so just like once a year an audit of everything you're committing your money to (laughs) just to make sure it still exists even (laughs) like like is this magazine still around or am i just sending someone ten dollars a month well you know this is another like this is bringing to mind another development in recent months with covid is that uh i have stopped spending money like a lot of money that i used to spend Mm -hmm. on things like coffee and I, i give myself haircuts now and it's like believe it or not it's like it's like fine like i'm actually like oh my god like i could have been cutting my hair the entire time like i don't look i but i'm a guy i don't look that it's not like it's not like i look great it's a little i mean there are definitely some glitches but it's like passable i don't you know i'm not going into an office or anything so it's like why am i you know and so i'm starting to add it up and i'm like you know you could save like like really the only expenses we have are groceries and whatever we're like you know Clorox wipes from Amazon or whatever. <laughs> but um, I think the name of your barber shop should be. It's not great, but <laughs> it's not. It's not great clips. Is that what it's going to be called? Like, not great clips. Yeah. I give my son. I give my son haircuts too. Uh, like you know, we. I do him and I do myself. And then my wife has to like do the back of my head because I, you know, I can't see it. Right. But, um. I. I like it. I did my husband's and I was yeah. It was really fun cutting cutting my husband's hair it was terrifying but it but it worked out yeah i didn't totally mess it up no yeah it's like i like the danger like what what's going to happen this time Could, <laughs> is, is this going to be the day when everything goes south and i you know i <laughs> accidentally you know carve out a white spot or whatever in the side of my head but oh my god it, it grows back oh, no. it happened to my son it grows back yeah I, yeah it happened to my son because he was wiggling around in the his chair you know and 
it just uh you know for there's a little bit of a notch at the top of his head that came oh. out <laughs> i was like sorry it's another great salon name it grows back <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the businesses that will open so are you teaching at columbia is that what you do or yeah i um i have i still have too many jobs that's a problem i need to look at i need to look deep inside i need to look at that that part of myself that just keeps signing up for work but i do teach at i teach in the undergraduate program at columbia i'm an adjunct there um so fiction workshops this spring I did a seminar about time travel and fiction, which was a lot of fun. And then I, I teach at Catapult um, about flash fiction and writing the surreal and the strange. And I just started teaching at the 92nd Street Y, hmm. too. So all over the place. <laughs> no, but it, like, interesting, the, the surreal and the strange, like that's something you've learned a bit about with your book. Um, yeah. Like what would you, for people listening who like that kind of fiction as as a reader uh, and might have some interest in writing it like that feels to me like just as somebody who works in a different mode um like what do you what do you got to do to get yourself into a world where like the the rules of the game are fundamentally different than they are in uh, like our reality you know what i'm saying like how do you yeah how do you set about making it believable so believability is an interesting question because I think we've now entered a place where anything is believable in our world. And so I think when people talk about that, they're really what they're really asking is does the pattern that your story or your book sets into motion deliver on itself? And so whatever that means for whatever you're making it means like, is it believable within the terms that you're working in? Because if you told me right now that there was a werewolf roaming the streets <laughs> in your neighborhood, I would 100% believe you because the idea that the impossible is possible has come to fruition, I think, in 2020. So, so yeah, kind of putting that idea of believability aside as a structural question and a question about the internal logic of what you're writing. And then I think, you know, for me, I would love to just write a 600-page epic family story that's entirely realist, but I don't know how to do that right now. And surrealism is kind of the only way I knew into the book that I wanted to write. It wasn't even a choice. It's just how it came out. I think that's true for a lot of writers. But if it isn't true for you, then I would propose this idea that when you're in a realist world, the emotions of the piece are in a sealed container. And it's a container that the reader can understand and maybe that container is like in the shape of a narrator or in the language of the story but we can we know how to read the emotion of the world because it's it's all bottled up for us again that's something that's really hard to do and really hard to do well i think that in surrealist fiction that container is leaky and figuring out how and why it's leaky 
is part of the challenge of writing something that's surrealist, but it just means that the emotions of the story do not are not separate from the world of the story, the language of the story, the plot, and it starts to inform things in ways that don't necessarily make logical sense. Hmm. That's how I would describe it. No, yeah, um, and I think too, like what I'm thinking as uh, as you're talking is that it's got to also add an ele- like a a really strong element of play to yeah. the act of composition that might free you up or i'm imagining freeze you up it makes it more fun maybe or something um i think so yeah than to like <laughs> sure. be just like confined to you know the real or whatever whatever like um it just means that you have different masters you know like uh if your master is the way things work and the way physics works, then that's hard. It's hard to obey those masters when you're writing. But if you're kind of, you know, looking to the way that emotions work and the way that we don't understand the limits of that, then you're just thinking about something different, I think. Hmm. Or the way we don't understand the limits of the mind too and what's possible to experience in the mind of a human being i think i think we barely understand that and so and so to call it not realism is i think it's faulty and flawed but it's helpful in terms of discussing it but i think that surreal the surreal is just more real to me at least Hmm. nowadays yeah right i mean if ever if ever there was a time (laughs) yeah well it's it's a it's been a delight uh talking with you and uh, i want to congratulate you on the publication of this book and the great critical reception that it's been getting um and you said earlier you're you're playing with the next book are you writing the next thing i am okay i don't know how to describe it yet (laughs) but it's an it's a novel is it also like in this surrealist kind of mode is are you doing similar things in that way it's it's surrealist but in a different way it's focused on different things so yeah i still don't know how to write something that's not but i'll let you know if i figure it out (laughs) okay and then last question since you have this performance background is there any way you would close the interview with a show tune or can you do something for us like to um to send us off into our covid quarantine holes with like a little bit of light and hope (laughs) i think i can do that all right well i'll Um, I'll let you figure out what song it is going to be but this uh this would okay. be a treat. This might be the first time I've ever convinced a guest to sing on my show. I'm easy, you know. <laughs> okay, this is this is not a show tune, but it's kind of like, and I apologize. I'm I'm gonna play a little ukulele with it, but I'm I'm really not a very good ukulelist. Oh, you have you have a u- <laughs> you have a ukulele just at the ready there. Yeah. <laughs> I like that you have one within like arms reach. I have a whole setup. Oh yeah, I do this thing on on Monday nights. Um, it's like a Zoom ukulele party with people from all over the country, and so I do have it at the ready today. But, <laughs> Wait, there's a Zoom uk- um, there's a Zoom ukulele party. Oh, God, it's such a long story. But this um, so the the very talented woman who took my author photo, her father is this guy named Dr. Uke. And he has this website with really like easy arrangements for ukulele. 
um, any song you could want. And when she was taking my author photos, we came to this point in the discussion and that's how I taught myself to play ukulele was from his website. So she invited me, he has these group jam sessions where everyone is on mute. So you don't have to hear anyone play, but him and you can play along and he provides the music and there's like usually 40 to 50 people there. It's so much fun. (laughs) It's really, really cute. Okay. That sounds like, that sounds like a good use of (laughs) COVID quarantine time. I think so. I think so. Very creative. All right. Well, uh, what are we going to hear? What's what's? But I was well, I was going to say I think it might be out of tune. So if you have perfect pitch, you should turn the podcast off now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> see. So I'm going to play on the sunny side of the street, which is usually such an optimistic song, but I like to imagine it in terms of running away from someone who isn't wearing a mask. (laughs) That's my version of it. Grab your coat and get your hat. Leave your worries on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street can you hear a pitter pat and that happy tune is your step oh life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street i used to in the shade with my blues on parade now I'm not afraid this rover has crossed over if I never have a cent I'll be rich as a Rockefeller gold dust at my feet on the sunny side of the street. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's Thank lovely. Thank you for tolerating no, that. That's, I feel like if I could ask all of my guests going forward to play the ukulele and sing to me at the end. <laughs> Just make it so it's not uh, you're not a literary podcaster no, anymore. I think you're I might a... have to build this into the rules of the show, that I must be serenaded so. by my guests every episode. <laughs> Um, well, it's my pleasure. And I, I, it was your birthday this weekend, right? It was. August 1st is my what? birthday. So happy, happy birthday. It's well, a birthday serenade. Yeah, there we go. It was my, <laughs> I appreciate it. What a lovely gift. And uh, just really delightful to meet you and to talk to you. And uh, congrats again on the book. I wish you well on the new book. And stay safe out there in Brooklyn. Thanks. You too, Brad. All right. There you go. That is Hillary Leichter. Her debut novel is called Temporary. And it is available now from Coffee House Press. You can find her online at hillaryleichter.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle there is at Hilsafina. She's on Instagram. She's on Facebook. She's on Goodreads. Once again, the novel is called Temporary. Go get your copy immediately. The new one from Hillary Leichter. 
The Other People podcast is entirely free. It is offered freely. All 660-some-odd episodes are available right now to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the show, support the show. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. If you're looking for gear, you want to get another people t-shirt, sweatshirt, or even a tank top, you can do that at otherppl.com, the show's official website. Just look for the uh, link in the left sidebar. You'll see it. There's a t-shirt. You click on it. You can't miss it. Get a t-shirt, get a sweatshirt, do something weird, cut the sleeves off. I don't care. Wear it in public. There you go. You can also get the Other People app. This show has its own official app. It, too, is free. Get the Other People app. It's available where apps are available. I gotta say, I feel bad, uh... feel bad about over-talking. just feel like a moron. Hopefully it was better this time around. Uh, so coming up on Sunday, I've got, uh, I think I've got Sabrina Ora Mark. If not her, then I'm going to have uh, Nick Flynn coming up on the show soon. Had a great talk with him. So I think it's just... Uh, it's time for me to be quiet. Thank <laughs> you.